0: Isaiah chapter thirty two. It is, of course, 20 verses. If for whatever reason, you've missed any portion of the book of Isaiah, it's available in the media room or you can go to our website and download any portion at your leisure. Isaiah chapter thirty two, beginning in verse one, it says, behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule with justice. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind and the cover from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. The eyes of those who see will not be dim and the ears of those who hear will listen. Also, the heart of the rash will understand knowledge and the tongue of the stammerers will be ready to speak plainly. The foolish person will no longer be called generous, nor the miser said to be bountiful, for the foolish person will speak foolishness and his heart will work iniquity to practice ungodliness. To utter error against the Lord, to keep the hungry unsatisfied, and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. Also, the schemes of the schemer are evil. He devises wicked plans to destroy the poor with lying words. Even when the needy speaks justice. But a generous man devises generous things. And by generosity he shall stand. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech in a year and some days. You will be troubled, you complacent women, for the vintage will fail. The gathering will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, you complacent ones. Strip yourselves, make yourselves bare and gird sackcloth on your waists. People shall mourn upon their breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine on the land of my people will come up thorns and briars. Yes, on all the happy homes in the joyous city, because the palaces will be forsaken. The bustling city will be deserted. The forts and towers will become lairs forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks until... Until the spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is counted as a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. The work of righteousness will be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. My people will dwell in a peaceful habitation and secure dwellings and in quiet resting places, though hail comes down on the forest. And the city is brought low in humiliation. Blessed are you who sow beside all waters, who send out freely the feet of the ox and the donkey. Remember, part of what I told you is that parts of the book of Isaiah are poetry. This is poetry and prophecy. The book of Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. Did you know that? As a matter of fact, there are four hundred and nineteen references of the book of Isaiah in twenty three New Testament books. The next most quoted book in all of the New Testament is the book of Psalms. There are four hundred and fourteen quotes in the in the New Testament from the book of Psalms in twenty three books. In the last several chapters, Isaiah has revealed God's persistent invitation For the children of Israel and Judah and Jerusalem to repent and return to the Lord. In chapter 30 and 31, God promised to be gracious and hear the cries of his people. The Lord promised to comfort his people and hear their prayers. In chapter 30, verse 19, to teach them and guide them in chapter 30 verses 23 through 26 to defeat their enemies in chapter 30 verses 27 through 28 to fill their hearts with joy in chapter 30 verse 29. And then in chapter 31, Isaiah warned the people again not to trust Egypt. And remember what we've learned, that Egypt becomes a type and a picture of the world of slavery, of bondage, of the world in which you used to live, which God delivered you out of in order to save you and redeem you and establish friendship and relationship with you. And we also saw something else. Isaiah reminded the people that God alone has the power to deliver in times of crisis. God's wisdom exceeds the wisdom of human beings. The Lord keeps his word. He punishes evildoers. The Lord would destroy the wicked who associated themselves with the wicked from Judah. He reminded the people that the armies of Egypt were mere human beings, that their horses were Flesh and that their chariots were mere machines. The Lord, like a lion, wouldn't be frightened or scared away like a bird who encircled Jerusalem. He he knows exactly what's going on. He would deliver Jerusalem. The Lord promised forgiveness and mercy for those who sinned against him. And remember what we learned, even those who sinned deeply against him in verses six through nine of chapter thirty one. So we see this reoccurring statement made in the book of Isaiah, and that is no matter how bad things have become, no matter how far you've strayed, no matter how distant you found yourself in your thinking or your speaking or your living away from God, God wants you to turn from your sin and turn back to him. The Lord calls every generation to repentance and to turn to to the Lord for safety and security. Even if we've repeatedly ignored the Lord, even if we've repeatedly denied the Lord, even if you've lived a life where you where you say you don't understand, I've done some really bad things. Well, the reality is, if you fail to repent, if you fail to turn to the Lord, there's a judgment. Life is uncertain. We're not promised one more day. If we confess our sin and repent, God will give us a deep sense of assurance that we have been forgiven and that he will accept you. Remember, that's what we learned in the book of Ephesians, that you're chosen, adopted and accepted. And so now Isaiah turns our attention to a future and a coming king. He draws back the curtain. It's almost like, again, you go to the movies and you know how you get there early so you can get your favorite seat. And then the previews come on. And in Isaiah chapter 32, it's previews of the messianic kingdom. And the Messiah himself will appear in power and glory and beauty and accomplish several things. And I'm going to point to five things in just a moment. The more I read and study the book of Isaiah, the more I'm beginning to understand how the Jews of Jesus's day came to the conclusion, hey, wait a minute, according to the prophets, the Messiah is a coming king. How do you explain Jesus as a suffering servant? How do you explain Jesus as a person who comes and and lives and dies and then and then rises from the dead? In light of all of the prophecies that are made concerning this person that the Old Testament calls the Messiah, that the New Testament calls the Christ. Well, the only answer that seems to make sense is that both are true when Isaiah describes a suffering servant in Isaiah 53 who was bruised for our iniquities, who was beaten and abused for our sins and by his stripes. Remember, it says that we are healed. The only way that it makes sense is that there's two comings, the coming of a suffering servant and the coming of a glorious messiah. And when the Messiah comes, it says he will appear in power and glory and in beauty. And he accomplishes at least five things. Number one, he rules as Earth's righteous king in verse one. There's a righteous princes who will rule with him. And number two, he restores a regenerate Israel in verses two and four. The people in the land look to the Lord and they listen to the Lord. And number three, he makes everything that has ever been wrong right. Now, remember, when the Bible talks, and particularly when Isaiah talks about two words and two reoccurring words become important words for you to think about and understand their meaning. The first word is righteousness. The word righteousness means to observe and obey God's commandments. Righteousness means a right standing with God or a right relationship with God. Justice is a word that the Bible uses to describe. A deference towards and an acknowledgement of other people's privileges, rights and privileges. In other words, justice is recognizing that human beings have certain inalienable rights, certain privileges by virtue of the fact that they're human. And so the Messiah comes, he writes every wrong, he exposes the wicked and the ungodly, and he is generous to those who love him. And number four, he'll meet the needs of all people. We, we, we're going to learn about that in chapter thirty three. There's going to be a fortress and food and water. And we're going to learn in chapter 33, number five, that the Lord will reign as both judge and king. He will care for his people and he will save them. So, again, one of the great revelations of the New Testament was Messiah's coming for salvation from sin. And then a future coming of the Messiah And so we understand that the opening verse of chapter 32, when it says, behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule with justice. When Isaiah speaks these words, remember, Assyria is threatening from the north. Egypt is a power to the south. Israel has experienced a series of really bad kings. Wicked kings who have not honored God, who have not exercised righteousness or justice. And so the moment that Isaiah announces to the people of Jerusalem and Judea, behold, a king will reign in righteousness. There's this sense of. Of a sigh. It's the same kind of word, if you can imagine, in our own political arena, if someone announced during a presidential debate. A president is coming who will honor God and who will respect the rights of individuals as it's outlined in the Constitution. You'd hear this. (gasps) Is such a thing possible? A godly leader who will exercise godliness? The Lord promised a king. He also promised princes who would rule with him in justice. Remember, acknowledging and honoring other people's rights and privileges. The children of Israel started out as a theocracy. You, you remember the story of Israel, how again, God was to be their king. But the children of Israel cried and complained and said, we want to be a, we want to have a king. We want to be like all the rest of the nations on the earth. And so God allowed Saul to be become the king. But remember, in rebellion and disobedience, God removed Saul and he establishes David as the king. And it was through David and the son of David that Messiah would come. The king who will come will not be like the evil rulers that they had experienced. And so part of the promise is the coming king will come and he will rule in righteousness. I couldn't help but thinking about Lincoln in his Gettysburg Address in, in the Gettysburg Address, he talked about, you know, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent, a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated the proposition that all men are created equal. And then and he talked about this experiment that we call democracy rule of the people, by the people and for the people. And remember, there's a phrase in the Gettysburg Address that says and a government that will not perish. I admire Lincoln. Possibly more than any other president who's ever been president. But Lincoln was wrong. Lincoln was wrong. There is a government. And it is not a government by the people for the people forever. Because, you know it's sad? Just like a, monarch, a monarchy can be corrupt because you have a corrupt king. A democracy can become corrupt when you have a corrupt people. So the Bible pictures not a a democracy, but a divine monarchy that comes with a righteous ruler named Jesus Christ who will rule and reign as Lord. You've all heard the expression, power corrupts. And how does the rest of it go? Absolute power corrupts. That statement is true if you're dealing with a human being. The only way that a person with absolute power can act with absolute righteousness is if that person is absolutely perfect and righteous himself. Is there anyone who fits that description that you're aware of? There's only one person, Jesus Christ. He's the only one who's fit to rule. And so again. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, there's a little hint that's given to us in verses 3 and 4. It says, The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear and shining rain. And so here is Isaiah promising a coming king. Now, again, now the New Testament begins to make sense. The New Testament begins to make sense as you begin to read the story of Jesus and how his disciples think, well, if you're really the Messiah, then you're going to establish a kingdom. A kingdom requires a king. And if you're that king and you're going to establish your kingdom, you remember the story of how James and John's mom comes to Jesus and says, hey, when you have your kingdom, can my sons sit On the left hand and the right hand. And do you remember Jesus's response? Lady, you you don't know what you're asking. He says that's given to the person that my father has appointed for it. And do you remember what Jesus? They said, well, can we? Can we sit on the left hand and the right hand in in your coming kingdom? And he said, are you willing to do what I'm going to do? And remember what they said? We are. Not knowing that what Jesus is going to do is he's going to march to Jerusalem and he's going to die a painful death, but he's going to rise from the dead. There is a coming kingdom. And there is a coming king. And the coming king is going to be followed by a future restoration. Look at verse two. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. The eyes of those who see will not be dim and the ears of those who hear will listen. Also, the heart of the rash will understand knowledge and the tongue of the stammerers will be ready to speak plainly here. Here's part of what the meaning is in the coming kingdom. There is a Lord and there are princes The Lord will shelter people from trouble, water their thirsty souls, cast his shadow over the afflicted and the dying. So even in the picture of the coming kingdom with the coming king, you see a picture of the earthly ministry of Jesus in his first coming, but you also see a future glorified kingdom. Here, the idea is that the Messiah will enable everyone to see and hear the truth. The spiritually blind and the spiritually deaf will have their eyes opened and their ears unplugged. The hard hearted, the rash, the careless, the reckless, the stammerers. By the way, the stammerers are those who are. Hesitant and uncertain, but I think that it's more. I think it becomes a type and a picture, and the tongue of the stammers will be ready to speak. It's the idea of those who have been in a drunken slur. If you've ever been with someone who's been drunk or who has been intoxicated, and you know, the way they talk and what they say and, you know, this incoherence of of speaking, the idea is, guess what? People are going to speak plainly and clearly and with certainty in the messianic kingdom. But there's even more. When you think a man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest as rivers of water in a dry place, it becomes a description of a king who bears the brunt of the storms of life. Have you ever been in a really difficult situation in your life and you needed help? Maybe even a lot of help. If you've ever been in a situation where you've been outside in the weather and the storm is beating down and you run to a place of shelter, you'll discover something that when it starts to hail or when it starts to snow, when the weather starts surrounding you and you go into your car to, to escape the weather, or you go into your house to escape the weather, it is your car or your house that bears the brunt of the storm. Isaiah predicts a messiah. Who will bear the brunt of the storms of your life. This is why we sing about Jesus being a shelter and Jesus being a refuge, a place where you can run into to bear the storms that blow in your life. There's a coming king and there's a coming restoration, but there's also a future justice. Look what it says in verse five. The foolish person will no longer be called generous, nor the miser said to be bountiful in verse six for the foolish person will speak foolishness and the heart will work iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error against the Lord, to keep the hungry unsatisfied, And he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. Also, the schemes of the schemer are evil. He devises wicked plans to destroy the words with the poor with lying words, even when the needy speak justice. But a generous man devises generous things, and by generosity he shall stand. Part of what is being taught here, the word foolish, and it's many, many ways that it's, that it's translated between verses 5 and 8, is an interesting Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word nabal or naval. Are you familiar with that word? There's a man in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel chapter 25, he was married to a lady named Abigail. He was called Nabal. His, his name means fool or a person who's void of judgment. I don't know if you're familiar with 1 Samuel chapter 25, but he typifies what Isaiah is saying here. This guy, remember, David is on the run and he needs to feed his men. And this guy had had cattle and sheep and provisions. And David asked him in order to help him. And he refused. And remember, David had the ability to kill him. And his wife, his beautiful wife, his precious wife, went to David and pleaded for her foolish husband's life. And said, you're the future king of Israel. You are a man who God has called to act with. With justice and righteousness, with godliness and dignity. Please spare my husband. And against his better judgment, David decides not to kill this guy. And within a few days, he drops dead of a heart attack. And Abigail becomes his wife. Well... That's part of what's being said here. The the foolish man will no longer be called generous. Here's the idea. The idea is that in the Messiah's kingdom, those people, the foolish, the person who the foolish here is the person who uses his or her position for personal profit and not for the good of the people. The foolish are people. Who take advantage of their position And because they take advantage of their their position, they use it in order to advance their own wealth. And and so Isaiah is pointing out that how you treat the needy becomes a true indicator of your character. You have to understand something. In Isaiah's day, there was a cult of celebrity. In Isaiah's day, people admired the rich, the famous, the wealthy, wealthy. The people who were the avant-garde people of fashion and all of that other stuff. And if you notice something, that few things have changed. From Isaiah's day, there's this cult of worshiping the famous, the rich. And even our, in our own day, there's this cult, this fascination. When you go to King Supers and you're standing in the checkout line and you're reading about Britney Spears, or this particular person or that Brad is leaving Aunt Angela Jolie. And I can remember standing in the checkout line looking at this paper and saying to the checkout girl, and I care about this for what reason? Why? Should, why is this important? Well, guess what? Dr. Martin Luther King, of course, was famous for envisioning a day when people would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And Isaiah's talking about that day. A day, a future day, where people are judged on the content of their character. They're judged on the way that they honor God and the way that they treat others. That's the idea just because people have money or just because people have fame or just because people have influence doesn't mean that their character becomes a reflection of Christ's character. So in the kingdom of God, people won't be fooled. That's the idea. Isaiah is saying people aren't going to be fooled by money. They're not going to be fooled by power. They're not going to be fooled by celebrity in the in the In the Living Bible, it says this wealthy cheaters will not be spoken of as generous, outstanding men. Everyone will recognize an evil man when he sees him and hypocrites won't fool anyone. But it would seem that evil men and women and fools in our day fool everyone. I was talking on the radio show. I. I shouldn't have said it, but I did. I criticized Oprah. And I got an email. She does a lot of good. Think of all of the good that Oprah does. Yeah, she gives her audience a car. Yeah, she has a television show. think of all the good that Oprah does. You know what Oprah does? She challenges the God of the Bible. She says the real problems that people face have nothing to do with sin. And that people don't really need a Savior. Do you realize that when you constantly remind people that the Bible is not true and that it cannot be trusted and that Jesus is not the Lord and that he is not the savior of sin and that he didn't really rise from the dead and that the way that a person has a right relationship with God is by embracing the Lord Jesus Christ, you're doing you're not doing good. You're doing harm. And so when Messiah's kingdom comes, that's part of what Isaiah is saying. It's going to be a a kind of a kingdom where no matter how wealthy you are, no matter how famous you are, you won't be able to pull the wool over other people's lives because they're going to be able to see through the duplicity and the hypocrisy. That's the idea. In Jeremiah chapter 31, 31, he describes that day. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their sin and remember their iniquity no more. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I want you to imagine, just for a moment, a world where your past and your sin and your mistakes and your failure don't matter ever again. You have real freedom. You have a clean conscience and purity in your relationship with the people that you love. That's the kind of place that Isaiah is imagining and look what it says in verse nine. Rise up, you women who are at ease hear my voice, you complacent daughters, give ear to my speech in verse 10 in a year. And some days you're going to be troubled, you complacent women for the vintage will fail. The gathering will come. Here's the idea. Now, Isaiah shifts gears from the messianic kingdom and he begins to address not just the rulers who are in Jerusalem and Judea. You've heard the expression behind every great man. There's a a woman is exactly right. And so now he begins to address the women, the women who are the wives of the rich and the famous rulers. These are the rich and the aristocratic women. These are the women who are self-absorbed and indifferent to the profound problems facing the nation. There is a judgment that's coming. Remember, Assyria is coming from the north. He says, within a matter of years and days before the judgment is through, the wealthy women wouldn't, w- were going to have to give up not only their luxuries, but their necessities. He's basically saying, wake up. Wake up. There's a judgment that's coming, and I need you to wake up and understand that the way that you're living in apathy and indifference, quite apart from God and quite apart from the God of the Bible, everything is going to change in a moment. In the not too distant future, there's a judgment coming. And you got if we were to put it in modern language, imagine God speaking to women today saying, ladies. There's going to come a time when you can't shop at DSW. You won't have 300 pairs of shoes. You may only have one pair of shoes. There might even come a time when you have to walk around barefoot. And I know what some of you think. I prefer to walk around barefoot. What he's basically saying is this. Everything is going to change When the judgment comes Some of you have experienced Financial hardship Some of you have experienced Physical illness Some of you have experienced Relational disaster Some of you have experienced The death of a loved one And you know how that changes everything That changes everything And so Isaiah, as he's talking to the ladies, he says, women, tremble in verse 11, tremble, you women who are at ease, be troubled, you complacent ones, strip yourselves, make yourselves bare and gird sackcloth on your waists. It, It might be difficult for you to understand this verse. But remember what I said to you. Within a year, the invading forces of Assyria are going to come knocking on Jerusalem's doorsteps. They're going to prepare to enter their gates. In light of the coming judgment, he's basically saying, turn the TV off. Turn the radio off. Understand that your makeup kit isn't the most important thing. Now, don't get me wrong, ladies. I'm not suggesting you can't wear makeup. My pastor, Chuck Smith, was once asked, do you think it's okay for ladies to wear makeup? And he said, well, If the fence needs or if the barn needs painting, paint it. It's not wrong for you to have clothes and it's not wrong for you to buy shoes and it's not wrong for you to put on makeup. But you need to think about eternal matters. He is in effect saying in light of the coming judgment, women should take off their clothes. They should put on a sackcloth of garment. Uh, It's a garment of mourning and repentance. They would exchange one set of clothes for another another set of clothes that recognizes that there's something wrong and, and that there was a need to return from sin and make preparation for the future suffering and the ultimate consequence of sin. But again, part of the way of thinking about that is. Understand that there may come a time that you have to live with less, not more. If there is coming a time in the future where you have to live with less rather than more, then maybe it's time for you to begin thinking, how can I live with less instead of more? How can I simplify my life and simplify my circumstances and simplify my tastes? The women had been apathetic and unconcerned and lethargic and indifferent. These were women who had ignored the Lord, who had ignored his warnings, and they were finding themselves in very difficult circumstances, but they were pretending like life was going to go on as usual. And so the warning isn't simply restricted to the women. The warning extends to anyone who's reading the book. Is it possible that tomorrow or day after tomorrow, life may not go on as you always imagined in verse 12, people shall mourn upon their breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine on the land of my people will come thorns and briars. Yes, on all the happy homes in the joyous city, Isaiah is painting a picture of a land But suddenly, desolated, uncultivated, untilled, overgrown with thorns and briars, he is envisioning a place where the homes are empty and the city is desolate and abandoned. It's sometimes hard for us to imagine stuff like that. I saw it firsthand in New York. Do you remember when the Twin Towers were decimated and bombed and you see one hundred and ten stories come and there's 15 acres of 14 stories of trash. And I have told you this story before, that my first impression when I was at ground zero, my first the first thought that came to my mind as I walked into the area that was known as Ground Zero the Monday morning following the bombing. And I'm I'm seeing officers and I'm seeing firefighters and I'm seeing emergency service workers and they're still struggling because we're still in recovery mode. I'm thinking, is there anyone left alive? Is there anyone left alive? And then I'm thinking to myself, how could something so valuable become so worthless so quickly? I know each and every one of you have had that experience. who have ever bought a new car and then wrecked it. How could something so valuable become so worthless so quickly? In verse 14, it says, because the palaces will be forsaken. The bustling city will be deserted. The forts and towers will become lairs forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, by the way. The Assyrians are turned back. In the future, Hezekiah turns from a sin. The nation repents. There is a delay in the judgment. This is about 700 B.C. In 586 B.C., years later, the Babylonian armies will come into Jerusalem. And they'll lay waste to the surrounding cities. Jerusalem will be destroyed. And then it will be even more typified in 66 A.D. and 67, 68, 69 and 70 when the combined armies of Rome march on Jerusalem and destroy it. Then there's another series between 131 and 130 A.D. or 131 and 135 A.D. It's called the Bar Kokhba revolt, where the last vestiges of Judaism and, and the Jews in, in the land revolt for one last time in one of the most amazing slaughters in the history of the region. Over half a million Jews are further put to death. But you know what I seriously think? I seriously think that the invasion by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C., the invasion of the Romans in 70 A.D., the destruction of that is described isn't what's in this chapter. It's probably a future destruction that still awaits Jerusalem. And then there's a break. The coming provision and protection in verse 15. In the middle of the sentence, you have this remarkable statement until the spirit is poured upon us from on high and note it says the spirit is poured upon us. From on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is is counted as a forest. The idea being the Messiah and the messianic kingdom pours out his spirit and his spirit falls upon all believers. I think that there's a partial fulfillment that takes place in Acts chapter two when the Holy Spirit comes upon the earth and, and upon the church. In Ezekiel, chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and keep my judgments. And do them in Joel, chapter two, verse 28, it says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. When the Holy Spirit was poured out in Acts, chapter two, Peter refers to Joel, chapter two, verse 28, as a partial fulfillment of what was happening. And so, again, you see a situation where there's this description of a spirit, the Holy Spirit, that is given to believers to empower them to live their lives for God. And we see that for the Christian. But again, I suspect. That the Holy Spirit being poured out in Acts chapter 32 is not the same as Acts chapter two, but yet it is a future. Pouring out of God's Spirit on the people in Messiah's kingdom. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, it says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. These are Jews. Jews who've returned. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. It's a prophecy about the coming Messiah. Whose hands are pierced. Does that sound like anybody you know? A future king, a promised king. He pours out his blessings on the citizens. Again, here we have a glimpse, a picture of what the earth will be like when Jesus returns and he reigns in righteousness. Here's 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 the picture that's given to us. The Messiah pours out his spirit upon all believers. God's spirit, as it's poured out on believers, leads them and teaches them. The redeemed walk with confidence in the kingdom of God, serving the Messiah. But you know, what's wonderful for Christians. That you don't have to wait till the end of the time and Messiah's kingdom to be filled with the spirit and and walk in submission and obedience to the Lord. That's what it means in the New Testament when it says you be filled with the Holy Spirit and keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit Walk in the spirit, it says in Galatians, and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. I suspect with Messiah's presence and. With the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, there are powerful demonstrations of his majesty and glory. And so in Messiah's kingdom, you see a redemption that takes place not only in the physical hearts of people, but in the physical land in which they they resign. There seems to be a picture of the land itself being transformed from deserts. Deserts become fertile, and fertile fields will seem like forests. That's what it says in verse 15. Have you ever driven through the desert, either in California or Wyoming or even Colorado? You go through vast deserts and deserts and deserts. And then you come to pleasant rolling hills. And then you come to magnificent forests. See, this is what happens when the, the last week, remember, I'm spent driving 12 hours through Wyoming. And as you're driving 12 hours through Wyoming and you come through these deserts to this amazing wilderness in, in Yellowstone, this untouched preserve, it's breathtaking. Well, guess what? There seems to be some indication. That there's a restoration in Messiah's kingdom that takes place even of the planet Earth. In verse 16, it says, Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. What does that mean? Remember what I said? Then justice will dwell in the wilderness. If justice is respecting other people's rights, how can justice exist in a wilderness when a wilderness by its very definition means nobody's there? So, Bible students, Put your thinking caps on. How can justice exist in a wilderness? I'll give you at least what I think might be an answer. I think it's a reference to the redemption of creation and nature. I think it's a reference that when Messiah comes back, Even though we live in a broken and a fallen world. When Messiah returns, even in that brokenness and fallenness, creation itself will cease groaning, as it talks about in Romans. In Romans eight eighteen, it says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And it talks about this redemption that takes place. There are those who suggest that the earth itself becomes a kind of global garden of Eden. Of unbelievable beauty, justice and righteousness sweep across the globe. People respect the Lord. People respect God's laws and God's commandments. People respect the rights of others. And because righteousness and justice come, guess what follows in the, in the heels of righteousness and justice? Peace. Imagine a world where insecurity is gone, where fear is gone, where there is no Prilosec OTC, where you could say, Jesus made us brothers, but Prozac made us friends. You don't have a chemical relationship. We're the kind of deep deep insignificance and purposelessness that deep, dark void that grips people's souls is gone forever there's joy and peace and significance look what it says in verse 16 then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness remain in the fruitful field in verse 17 the work of righteousness will be peace And the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. The main thought, the main thought in verse 17 is that work of righteousness, which produces peace. Remember what we've already discovered. There can be no true peace. There's no lasting peace. There is no such thing as real peace. Unless you have a right relationship with God and peace with God and fellowship with God. That's the idea in Romans 5, 1. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When sinners trust Christ, when sinners receive the gift of righteousness. You can have peace in your heart and you can have a mechanism where you can truly enjoy true friendship and fellowship. When there's security and peace and people live in their homes undisturbed, completely free, you gotta understand what an amazing picture that is to a people who have been constantly brutalized and terrorized and occupied. Have you ever lived in a neighborhood where your next door neighbor hated your guts? Imagine living in in a neighborhood where your next door neighbor hates you, your other next door neighbor hates you, the person behind you hates you, the person across the street hates you. Tell me what you want to do. Move is right. You, You don't want to live in that kind of a neighborhood. And so Messiah's kingdom becomes a place. Where the next door neighbor you're you're okay with the the people in front of you and back of you you're okay with and look what it says in verse 18 my people will dwell in a peaceful habitation in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places though hail come down on the forest you know what I think that that means I think that even in Messiah's kingdom there are going to be what seems like a few setbacks but hail doesn't kill you. It can create problems, I guess, depending on the size of the hill, it might be able to kill you. And the city is brought low in humiliation. Look what it says. Blessed are you who sow beside all waters, who send out freely the feet of the ox and the donkey. What do you think that that means? I must have read at least eight commentaries on this particular subject with eight different interpretations. I'm reading this and I go, well, what, is, what, does, what does that mean? Who send out freely the feet of the ox and the donkey. You know what I think it means? I think that what it means is that if if you live in an agrarian culture or a society where you have ox and donkeys, you know what you do? You don't let the animals roam free because if the donkey goes out and the ox goes out and they eat the crops. Remember, you're living on a farm and if the donkey and the cows eat all of the crops, it creates a big fat stinking problem. But guess what? In Messiah's kingdom, the donkey gets loose, the ox gets loose, and it starts eating. And you go, who cares? Who cares? Because if the donkey and the ox eat everything day and night, forever and ever, they still won't even put a dent in the ultimate provision that's been given to us by Messiah. Do you know what it's like? It's like taking your kids to an all you can eat Chinese place. And you say, "No, don't don't go through that line. Don't don't go there. Don't don't get that rice, don't get those lo mein noodles, don't get that broccoli and beef, don't get that chicken." But if you've been there, you know that no matter how much they eat, they keep bringing more and more and more. You can't go to a Chinese all you can eat place Have you ever gone to a Chinese place and they said, you can't come here no more. You leave. We're losing money. It's never happened. They want everybody there. I never thought I would use Chinese food as an illustration of Messiah's kingdom. But that's the picture. It's a glorious picture. But you know what? We sometimes forget that there are people who who will reject that kingdom. That won't accept this kingdom. Do you remember as a child praying this prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. How does the rest go? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven day our daily bread forgive us our trespasses and we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom the power of the glory, forever and ever and ever now remember the part that goes thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth but you really don't mean it it's really not true Because if God's kingdom is going to be done on Earth, it's going to have to be done in righteousness and justice, like he's talking about in the chapter. But people who reject the authority of Jesus. People who reject Jesus as king, people who reject Jesus as heir of the earth, people who reject the Lord, people who refuse to obey his commandments, people who refuse to obey him. The picture is a picture of a person who's cut off from the Lord. He won't bless them. Because they've rejected him, because they've refused him, they'll be judged. But here's the picture. Those who know the Lord and follow the Lord will be blessed beyond measure. Tomorrow I'm doing a funeral. And I always quote John chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. You know the passage. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus, when he describes his future kingdom... He refers to it as his father's house. And he said, and if it weren't so, I would have told you. In other words, he's saying, I'm telling you the truth. I go to prepare a place for you. To receive you to myself. Isn't it interesting that the most important thing about heaven, it isn't that the streets are made of gold or that the. Or that the walls are made out of pearl. The most important thing about the future and the most important thing about Messiah's kingdom, it isn't the place where you're going, but it's the person you're going to be with once you get there. That's why. That's why. Over and over again, you're invited to believe Him. To trust Him. To love Him. To walk with him. You see, being a Christian doesn't mean you come to this church and you you go to this service and then everything is okay. Being a Christian means having a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Because you've confessed your sin and you've, you've trusted Jesus as your Messiah. He was a suffering servant. But he is the future king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we pray, we pray, we pray, we pray. Once again, Lord, that we will honor you with our lives. That Lord, as we walk with you and love you. That we anticipate this wondrous world. And that we're going to be a part of it. That we're going to be a part of Messiah's kingdom. Jesus said. That even if we died before the kingdom came. He would bring us back to life. And that we would live in that kingdom. What an amazing promise. And so again Lord. We pray. That we could walk with you in submission and humility. Walk with you faithfully. Walk with you in perseverance and love, love your kingdom that we can say with all honesty and all integrity and all purity of heart. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is now. In Jesus name. Amen. Let's stand. Got a song for us, parents?